Hello and welcome to our now regular series of CIO updates as we plot a course through the market volatility and navigate this coronavirus pandemic. I'm Richard Edgar, talking to you from my book-lined bunker on the south coast of England, and I'm joined today from his bunker in Surrey by Fidelis's Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey. Hello, Andrew. Good morning, Richard. Now, there's still plenty of uncertainty related to the pandemic, but despite that, there has been a shift in sentiment um, in markets, thanks to the unprecedented policy measures that have been announced. Can you talk us through what stage of the crisis um, you think markets are in now? Yes, I think that we're getting to that point where the markets are taking on board the um, extent of that intervention that we've seen from central banks and we're starting to see from the fiscal policy that has been uh, announced. Although on the latter, it will take time to see how that feeds through, how it gets to where it needs to, to support individuals, to um, small companies as well as large companies in terms of being able to uh, manage through this very difficult um, period. In terms of central bank um, actions, and again that we saw the Fed overnight um, announcing that there were going to be uh, some easing of uh, bank regulations that gives an opportunity, one would argue, for balance sheets to be a little bit more flexible, therefore take on um, potential for a little bit more risk, which will help in terms of underlying market liquidity as well in some cases. I think just another step of what has been this incredible period of trying to free up the plumbing of the financial system and especially get dollars to where they're needed, as that was the biggest issue when you think about how important the the dollar is for the global economy. And I think the signs that that um, has been working have been increasing, that we've seen um, very quickly that the dollar swap lines um, produced a change in the um, uh, nature of the cross-currency um, base swap market that uh, uh, that led to uh, from very negative rates uh, back towards uh, a more balanced position, even slightly positive now and some of the key um, uh, you know, major cross-currency uh, activity. Uh, we've seen in the front end of money markets after a constant period in March of uh, getting up to the 12th day of LIBOR fixings uh, being higher, that that finally uh, eased going into the end of the month and now uh, showing signs of um, uh, stability again. And then combined with that, that we've seen volatility in asset classes just starting to show signs of uh, you know, easing in a more protracted way. One shouldn't lose sight that the overall implied volatility is still very high and that they still look like they will stay quite high in the months ahead. So we've got to see more work um, done there. But what it has done is meant that um, you know, some of the real concern around dealing spreads, some of the volumes there have improved from the worst that we were seeing um, coming through the middle of March. But we're nowhere near um, uh, you know, an environment that is uh, you know, similar to what we had going back into uh, to February. So again, I think you know, where we stand today, uncertainty around how long the economies will be unproductive, uncertainty around what is the nature in which COVID-19 will operate and when we can um, you know, get to a point that we feel in some level of control. And those variables are still very key and will act as um, constraints. But on the other side, real signs that the intervention is starting to work to stabilise markets. And so, you know, finding that spreads have stabilised, equity markets um, 
uh, you know, looking a little bit more um, uh, healthy in nature and that feeding through the financial system. So again, as we, we sort of touched on before, at, at the end of the sort of beginning um, phase at this stage, but certainly I think that to get highly excited on the upside, it's too early. Um, to be getting um, uh, you know, too bearish on the, the downside, I think that um, we have to see how some of that uh, uh, real data starts to, um, to feed through and how that will uh, impact thinking for the months ahead. So you painted a picture there, Andrew, of markets stabilising. The authorities have come in and fixed the plumbing, as you put it. Um, but what are you seeing in terms of other investor behaviour? What are they, the flows as this begins to unfreeze, the markets begin to unfreeze? So it's a very interesting uh, point because um, I think that you've seen different investors behave in, in different ways um, thus far. Um, clearly, we've seen from quite large swathes of investors that uh, doing very little through March, mainly looking to to see how this would pan out. Would it present opportunity? Was there uh, you know, signs that they should actually um, start to, to reposition? I think the activity that you saw primarily, and we've talked about um, uh, you know, in recent conversations, has been that uh, a lot of hedging, a lot of um, more fast-moving money, more of a systematic style um, movement. So you saw risk parity, systematic macro, other forms that uh, having to uh, rebalance or take down leverage and, uh, and risk. Um, not alone, that uh, you know, seeing that from other players as as well through uh, March. But you saw a lot of long-term investors, a lot of individual investors. Uh, not moving uh, very substantially. And as we came into the end of the month, um, you know, really from that sort of uh, week prior to, to month end, that starting to see some of the rebalancing flows and the expectation of those rebalancing flows in um, pension funds and other long-term investors providing some support as the likelihood was around 2%, give or take a bit, that was being moved um, uh, into the equity markets to have that rebalancing um, profile. As we roll into uh, to April, I think the challenge is um, for many is that where are the individual opportunities? And, and we'll come back to that in a second, maybe. Also, that from a strategic asset allocation, it's in some ways a little early to be making um, the big calls. And so what I would expect to see is that it's looking you know, through the portfolio. There are opportunities that uh, you know, maybe within asset classes across different sectors um, that uh, can start to reposition and, and extract some of the potential that's been created through what we've seen in movement of spreads, especially in terms of the broader asset class declines. Um, but not necessarily a significant um, you know, re-weighting in terms of equities, bonds and other assets um, you know, just yet. And that's really what we're looking out for. Any insights to that which give us a sense of, you know, are we into an ability of a market just to heal through time and, and being relatively stable? Or are we going to see um, you know, some more pronounced uh, positive action? Uh, or that uh, investors decide actually that they uh, need to um, you know, reallocate and take risk down um, somewhat further. At this stage, that's far from uh, you know, clear. And I think some of those decisions are yet to be made. So you mentioned their opportunities. And is it the case then that investors, um, perhaps going against consensus of, of, of standing back and waiting for things to settle, should now already be looking for individual opportunities? How, how do you play it? So I think there are um, uh, you know, elements that they should be looking at. What you're seeing occurring in uh, you know, investment grade, um, especially that there's uh, you know, some very significant support, and the market has reopened. You know, seeing issuance come through now for uh, uh, some of the, uh, the larger and um, uh, you know, better borrowers in terms of their ability to to access the, the marketplace, and. 
uh, on top of that, I think when you look to the high yield um, market, that you've had some of the price in there reach points where um, you know it would imply that there are significant default rates and recovery rate um, risk that has been discounted into those um, spreads, especially as we saw um, uh, you know moves towards the sort of four figure spreads throughout parts of the uh, the global high yield market. That really presenting um, you know, opportunities in some of the companies that actually will be able to function are, do have. Um, good balance sheets do have access to be able to uh, to refinance. So, I think in terms of the opportunities at this stage, and when you look at what's happening around Europe, that uh, the uh, obviously sense of wanting to get companies to be better capitalised. So, you know, dividends maybe uh, cuts that um, uh, the degree to which issuance around um, debt is likely to be a route where you'll find some of that sort of value and opportunity for for income uh, to be the focus that I would suggest that it's it's less about uh, going out there and um, aggressively you know increasing um, from cash although I think there's some opportunity it's more about starting to move uh, you know in terms of maybe at the bias asset class but also within sectors trying to take on a little bit more of that exposure into these areas where in effect they've discounted uh, a great deal and yet the intervention is likely to make the worst terrorist scenario uh, take it off the, the table. So uh, you could see a bounce back in some of these securities in the high yield and in um, the investment grade world uh, uh, you know, over the course of the next few weeks. So we'll come to the dividend cut in a moment. But if I just um, think back to our conversation a week ago, um, at that point, it was about the brakes having been put on and we were no longer in, in free fall. Um, and if I think about the, the, the picture you're painting now is that there's there's much more of a pattern coming through, that there is more detail and that you're you're going through a whole array of different areas um, where there is, uh, there is nuance um, emerging. Yes, definitely. And I think that's the part that, um, as I've said, to make a big call at the moment is, is probably still dangerous. But now we're starting to have a little bit of um, just as that real pressure that uh, one failed as uh, you had that uh, literally day after day of volatility increasing of uh, the inability to be able to um, navigate markets because of dealing spreads and liquidity uh, that was available. Now there is the opportunity to look at actually how does some of that uh, lie of the land um, as we stand today. And within that, starting to see that there are companies that clearly do have the strength of balance sheet that will be the survivors, that have and are paying um, levels that are very attractive um, you know, in terms of what they discount around that profile for individual companies. And so there are opportunities there think developing there both in the debt markets and looking as I said to credit both in investment grade and high yield but also that in some of the uh, you know, equity markets are looking to within sectors as well as across sectors where individual companies just again of literally a case of everything being um, marked down whereas actually they're in a much better position and so the opportunity to rotate portfolios and give that extra value that I think comes from uh, you know an active approach and the ability to deploy that active approach at these times. And coming to dividends, um, because you did mention that, and the big news has been that banks have been urged by regulators to halt dividends in order to preserve um, cash. Do you see that playing out in, in, in other sectors? And you know, what, what does it mean for those investors who relied on that income? Where can they go? Um, well, so I suppose in the first um, part of that question that um, yes, because uh, you know, as you see the intervention um, play out and as you see fiscal support, so government taking stakes that 
you know, will it be in the in the form of equity? Will it be uh, in terms of debt? Could it even be convertible debt? More likely in the US than um, uh, looking to Europe for uh, that latter. But I think that uh, you know, what that means is that um, you, know, you could see it going into other sectors, not just about the banks to recapitalize, but actually into companies that have been supported and that they, until um, they can pay back the uh, uh, taxpayers' money, that they have to uh, you know, build up that capital pay down debt or, or just be able to be in a position that they can function without uh, that level of support. In terms of for investors, I think it is very challenging um, uh, and that it will push um, investors to look around the world for where uh, you know, they, that process is maybe not happening in quite the same uh, level, where there's maybe a healthier recovery in activity, less intervention. Um, but there's also, again, back to the point around debt, that you know, some of the uh, debt spreads that we saw develop um, coming into uh, the latter part of March you know, providing enormous value. And within that, that, you know, if I look at something like European high yield, that you saw that being a market that's been very compromised with what the ECB has been doing for a long time through their buying patterns. You know, that's um, uh, easing, the crisis hitting, spreads going out where you've got yields going up into the levels of, um, you know, 7% plus in uh, across parts for, for very good companies. Uh, that all of a sudden there was some real uh, you know, value there. And then looking for savers, I think that the opportunity is to look around for the, the risk that's implied from the volatility is looking to to where we've we've been. The risk looking forward on that um, uh, those securities and what they're pricing actually has fallen to be better value and to be able to pay that income that may be uh, required. So I think selectively there are opportunities, but that will be a challenge because because it's not every investor that will have access to that analysis inside and, and to some of those uh, opportunities. And it's obviously uh, for us to try and help them to to navigate that through the course of the, the next few months and years. Now, most of the attention over the past few weeks has been focused on uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. But it's easy to forget that the trigger uh, at the beginning of all of this uh, that, that, that sent markets in a, in a tumble was um, oil. Can you um, take me through what's going on in, in oil right now? Uh, so, yes, I think that um, it's interesting that what we're seeing um, develop and literally just overnight as well with uh, China announcing that trying to build state reserves and so giving a little bit of support to uh, uh, to oil market, some hope coming back from that the Russians and the um, uh, Saudis will get into uh, discussion and that see that what they've done in, in recent times that maybe the, the counterproductiveness is as strong as the you know, maybe some of their hopes to uh, to ensure that uh, they could exert greater control through time on the oil market again. But where we stand today, I think, is that you can't ignore that it's had an enormous uh, impact onto the energy sector broadly, and especially back into the US. And the amount of capital that had been committed, the, the, the number of companies that will literally will move to having um, uh, you know, these stranded assets very quickly, um, that the damage has been substantial and it's hard to see how that can um, disappear um, as an influence for some time. It's also important to bear in mind that we have looked at an enormous demand shock. So even though we looked at oil and the announcement from the Russians and the Saudis implied that supply shock um, uh, you know, influence and what that's uh, done to many en energy companies, especially those in the, the US, that it's actually that at the same time we have had this enormous demand shock that has hit. And that's meant that you've had this glut at the same time 
um, implied that really has driven down the, the price and now you know, creates uh, much more of a strong headwind, even as we see people like the Chinese step in to um, maybe put some into reserve and as their activity picks up that um, it's not going to make up anywhere near that surplus that we've seen developing the, the oil market. So, so rolling forward, I think the challenge is more about stability and it's starting to be removed as, as an influence in one level. Um, and two, can it you know, move back to being a stimulus through seeing um, you know, these lower prices? That, I think, does go back into when we see economies starting to get back to being active and productive. And that sadly means that although oil is an important factor, it's, it's going to still be swamped by you know, how is the intervention free feeding through uh, into individual countries' economies, um, and also that uh, when we get out of this pure lockdown profile in um, part of the Western world, that uh, you know, really is the key aspect of um, you know, that demand shock and how long it lasts. Moving to a different topic, um, the volatility over the past few weeks has really put passive funds to the test in a way that they haven't really um, been put in, in decades. Now, Fidelity offers both active and passive funds, but do you think that um, there's going to be a reframing of the debate around passive and active investing? So I, I hope so, because some of the analysis that we've been doing and also the way in which we manage money in the main is about um, you know, the value that can be uh, derived from having not just an active um, stance, but the quality of that individual analysis into the factors that drive um, you know, what should be the outperformance of individual companies. And uh, although I won't go into detail on it now, that um, you know, we're producing an enormous amount of work um, on our ESG ratings, on sustainability investment uh, looking ahead, um, which my colleagues uh, will be bringing to, to investors over the course of the next few days and weeks, I think it's important that what you're seeing is that uh, active style of what that means with respect to those types of key influences on thinking about future investment and actually how they've helped performance through this period. I think one thing I would highlight, though, that um, you know, sometimes we, we see the conversation sort of becomes passive to, to ETFs. And, and one shouldn't lose sight that ETFs is a vehicle. And I think what's going to be exciting for that market is actually that active ETFs are likely to, to grow um, from this environment. And the fact that we've seen them as a vehicle work um, well, that there's been discounts in there because of the nature of, of some of the underlying exposures and, and index weighting, but also the portfolios that they're constructed from. But the reality is, I think what's going to be interesting is that investors may look towards active ETFs and some of the profiles of how you can incorporate those as we look forward. So I think active investing has shown merit and you know, we have some very good analytics and, uh, and data to uh, support that um, from recent events and as we look forward. But also that in terms of the vehicles that you're, you're still going to see, I think, evolution of some of these um, you know, vehicles in that what they are and what they contain, which I think will be uh, you know, exciting for investors in, in the months and years ahead as well. Well, you've um, helpfully cast our minds forward. So um, I'd like you to um, put us in um, the world that we're going to be in in a couple of years' time. Um, we had a podcast earlier this week when we asked some Fidelity investors where they thought investors should be positioning themselves for uh, a very different world because of the impact that the lockdown has had on economies everywhere. So how do you think an investor should be thinking about um, the, the, the new world that we'll be coming into? 
Yes, I, I mean, I think it's very interesting that the ways of working that shows the uh, uh, the value of technology, but also shows that, um, uh, you know, what will it mean for where we physically locate? How do we interact? What do you need to be able to uh, you know, run businesses? What are the, the challenges around that? And I think that this is highlighting for some um, businesses, especially in service industries, that what um, you know, may be required and what could be you know, improvements um, from how we uh, operate before, because I would highlight just in um, our business uh, the incredible level of collaboration, interaction um, and the speed at which we've been able to look across ideas, across markets to share insights has actually been um, uh, proliferating um, through uh, this uh, working from home environment and uh, the the linkages via the virtual world versus the uh, the physical one. So I I think there's there's things that we need to to draw out um, that will benefit us uh, over time and that will have consequences for forms of um, certain real estate and commitment there for technology and the way in which um, we'll see, I think, you know, further uh, emphasis on connectivity, the online, the mobile improvements, the the fact that that was already strong trends that they will just accelerate in the, uh, the period ahead. I I think one can't lose sight of though that, you know, in two years time that the understanding the consequence of state intervention and what that will mean for businesses and for the markets will be a key factor. Um, And also looking through there that I think, uh, again, that considerations that um, people will put on to the value of sustainable uh, investing, but underline it much more important that the aspects of of what it does mean for our world and the the value that's attached to that. And maybe that these um, difficult times have actually made people realise how important that is, uh, that it's not just... Yeah, they're on the side. It's it's actually embedded as part of uh, of how they think and uh, and behave because that's going to be where capital flows. Uh, and so, looking in the uh, into the future, that those capital decisions and the allocation of capital effect, I think, will be and the driving of it to a certain degree at times by the state and by their influence will be a very important um, consideration. And then finally, I think that um, the one sadly I don't have an answer to today uh, is that how in terms of this process where we've seen a lot of immediate support for economies to make sure the system can stand uh, uh, still. But how we work our way out of that, I think, is a vital uh, consideration as well, because you know there will be risks. There will be the degree to which how do you unwind that debt, all that potential growth you've brought forward to try and stabilise, how will that be uh, uh, then repaid? And does it mean that we have much slower growth levels again looking forward but with the fact that globalization was already being challenged and as we've seen sadly with the um, little bit of tit for tat from China and the US over um, uh, the virus uh, uh, data and insights this last um, couple of days that will we see that more challenges around supply chains around going more to local versus uh, global and what will be the uh, the impact of that I think those are very meaningful um uh, issues that the the risks are that supply chains have already been changing they will continue to change and the focus on trying to bring them more local uh, you know will be seen especially with the level of state intervention and will that mean that there is then uh, you know some degree of uh, risk around prices um, at that at some point in the future I think that it's too early to say but what we will have to do is how do we navigate the post environment as much as this current covering the crisis. 
So a lot of questions there, Andrew. I think you've actually set the running order for the rest of this series of podcasts. <laughs> thank you very much for that. Um, it's all the time we've uh, we've got today. So thank you for listening. Uh, you can hear more from a range of fidelity experts on the pandemic and how its impact is being absorbed by markets on both Rich Pickings and the Fidelity Answers podcast channels. Just search for those titles in your podcast app. You can also read all of the latest thinking online at fidelityinstitutional.com. Now, the producer today was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcock. But from all of us now, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.